0: Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Donald Trump is now selling pieces of the suit he wore during his mugshot to people who buy his digital trading cards. We have one hell of a show today. Senator Sherrod Brown stops by to talk about his reelection campaign in the great state of Ohio. Then we'll talk to Democratic strategist Jim Messina about how Biden can win in 2024. But first, we have the host of The Time of Monsters, The Nation's Jeet Here. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Jeet Here. Good to be
1: on the program.
0: You're, you sound very, like, normal and sane, and I sound very wild. But that's because you're in Canada, where life is still normal and sane. And I am in America, where everything is crazy. Yeah,
1: I, I think in Canada, even if you're, like, uh, high on cocaine, you tend to be calm.
0: <laughs> and you're also, if you're high on cocaine, you're usually, uh, what's that politician, Doug? Oh, Doug Ford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, is no, his brother, Rob Ford. He was the, the mayor of Toronto. Famously in a, in a crack video, but still much calmer than Donald Trump. So it was rough yes. on crack. So,
0: first, we're going to talk about a little bit of Canada content here because I know that's what the listeners long for. I read something about Justin Trudeau that he is and his party again, because I don't know the sort of local Canadian political landscape, but that Trump is such a toxic brand that actually in Canada, Justin Trudeau can run against him.
1: Yeah, I think that that's going to happen. The liberals, uh, which is Justin Trudeau's party, we are really lagging in the polls. They're suffering some of the same problems, I think, that all incumbent parties are having, including the Democrats, where they're associated with the hangover from COVID. But yeah, I think that the Canadian Conservative Party has radicalized in recent years. The head of the party, Paul Vier, is a Trump-like figure in some ways, and I think he's very vulnerable on that front. And as an example, I think it's very interesting the Canadian Conservatives have turned against Ukraine and are voting against this free trade deal that Canada's negotiating with Ukraine. It took me by surprise because Canada has a lot of Ukrainians. We took a lot of Ukrainians in both before the Second World War and afterwards. It has, I think, the largest population of Ukrainians outside of Ukraine. Yeah, traditionally, a lot of them have been conservatives. And so for them to turn against Ukraine in the context of, you know, a country that has a lot of Ukrainian immigrants, it's really something I think fits in with this larger pattern of uh, Trumpism.
0: So interesting. Will you say a little more about that? Well, it's generally the
1: case that all the sort of right-wing populist parties in um, Europe and the United States and Canada, the cynical way to put it is that they're taking the Putin line. I think the more neutral way is that they tend to be isolationist about Europe. They, they tend to think like, you know, if white people are fighting white people, you know, we don't have a dog in that fight. Yeah. So the Canadian conservatives are Becoming very isolationist about Ukraine, you know, and using the arguments that I think you hear from the GOP as well, like this is a waste
0: of money. And besides, what is fascism? It'll be fine.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's an interesting development, and I think Canada is a big supporter of Ukraine, and that's just one issue of many. But I do think that the uh, Canadian Conservative Party has gone on this sort of populist bent, which is regrettable. I mean, I think Canada traditionally has had one of the most centrist of conservative parties. They used actually used to be called the Progressive Conservative Party, (laughs) if you could believe that. (laughs) So that's all a thing of the past.
0: That's really interesting. So I want you to talk a little more about this idea you just brushed by, but is, I think, really important, post-COVID hangover.
1: I think one thing that we're seeing in all the sort of democracies is that incumbent parties tend to be in trouble. And I think a lot of that is not just about specific policies, but the fact that the, uh, you know, like after COVID, you know, when we're thinking everyone is happy, but there's actually a lot of side effects that happen with inflation. But also, like, I think even more broadly, the sort of degradation of social life, like here in Canada, our healthcare system, which many Americans admire, which used to be quite good, it's sort of fraying. A lot of doctors and nurses have left it. There's um, a lot more people that are sick uh, because of long COVID. And so, like, everything is getting worse. And, you know, more broadly, like, just like driving, like, like you know, there's just a lot more people that are driving very aggressively or you know, there's a lot of ways in which, like, social life has changed and people are just angrier and more willing to give vent to their anger. And unfortunately, I think that hurts incumbent parties and it helps a particular type of right-wing populist, which your listeners will know in the form of Trump. But, you know, it exists in many democracies. You know, there's a lot of anger out there. And if someone is willing to, you know, be the voice of that anger, they can, they can go far.
0: When we talk about this populist rage, this is what brought Trump into power. That's right. It's yeah, really yeah. scary. And it speaks to a certain American's feeling and, and, and Canadians and in other countries. We have uh, Georgia Maloney. We have in Italy, there's Le Pen. You know, she's not elected, but she could be with the polls. These polls may not be accurate, but they reflect a kind of anger because people get on the phone and say, like, no, I don't like it. I don't know.
1: No, I I think that's exactly right. And I mean, it's interesting to think about, like, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that a lot of the polling is because Democrats who will eventually vote for Biden are disaffected with him. You know, share the anger. So they're just saying they're not going to vote for him. Like, everything's going to tighten up. But, I mean, it's still terrifying that it's going to be a close election. And, you know, it's like Trump is on the ballot. No, but I think that the, the anger comes from, I think, people's sense of a fraying society. And there's a kind of paradox. Like, the economy is actually doing quite well in the United States. It's actually better than in Canada and better than in Europe. Like, if you just look at the raw numbers, some Democrats were kind of arguing, well, you know, this is just like media bias is making people think the economy is bad and it's not. Right. I think it's
0: an oversimplification, right?
1: Yeah, it's an oversimplification of the fact that people are like there are genuine things for people to be unhappy about. Still, like life expectancy is going down in the United States. I believe the number of uninsured is going up, but also like just generally social life, as I think changed and altered in a way that makes people yeah angry and alienated.
0: Yeah, I also think that when you were talking about this life expectancy, because we just had a really interesting episode and worth looking up, I think one of the most interesting interviews I've ever done with John Byrne Murray from the Financial Times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he walked us through how in every age in America you're more likely to die and you're several multiples more likely to die. But one of the things that I thought was very interesting about this was, I wonder how much all of this, you know, this is a post-COVID rage, this like, you know, fury about how things are not getting better or they're not getting better as fast, but that there's a sense that even the threat of voting for Trump, because you know what he's capable of, is a subversive act. Can you discuss-
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's the unfortunate thing, which is, and I think it's the basis of Trump's power, both in 2016, when he was like uh, harnessing a lot of the rage from the fact that the recovery from the Great Recession hadn't happened fast enough. And some of the social problems that we're seeing were already developing. And now which is that he really is the F.U. candidate, right? He's the, if you're mad at the way the world is, this is how you'll stick it to the man. And a lot of people use Trump for that way. Like, like not that they necessarily agree with him or even think he has a solution. They really want to show the powers of that, that be, like how mad they are. And he, so he has the advantage of, you know, he's the anti-system politic, uh, politician. And I think that Democrats sometimes are a little bit flat-footed in, opposing this because they try to play up certain things in Trump that actually work to his advantage because they highlight his anti-system uh, nature. Like, I think there's a limited amount you can do with some of his uh, criminal activities. Although I certainly believe the law should go after him. But if you make that the main political argument, there's a lot of people think, yeah, this guy's a crook, but that shows he's for real.
0: Right. He's our crook.
1: He's our crook. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he doesn't. He's, he's not owned by the system. In a way mm-hmm. that an honest person would be. More broadly, you, I don't think you could run on "America is already great" the slogan, which was used like by Obama and Hillary Clinton in 2016. In Canada, we see an interesting variation of this because the Conservatives, you know, one of the slogans that they have now is "Canada is broken." Unfortunately, Chrystia Friedland, who's the Deputy Prime Minister. Came out with you know a tweet saying you know Canada has never been broken right and I think that if you you know if you have people that are struggling to buy housing see groceries are more expensive you know to say Canada has never been broken you know it sounds complacent and it sounds like you don't want to do anything right I think that that's the big problem like I think you have to like feel people's pain as Bill Clinton says you have to offer people an awareness that. I know things are like, you know, not where they want to be. And here's what I'm going to do. And I'll fight for you.
0: I think that's right. And I also think that you cannot tell people that their reality is wrong. I mean, that will just make them furious.
1: There are unfortunately like a whole school of Democratic pundits whose basic response to like all the polling data saying, you know, people are okay feel that their own finances are okay, but they feel the economy is in the wrong direction and the country is going the wrong direction. Their whole response is, oh, people are just brainwashed by TikTok, right? <laughs> people are just brainwashed by the media. And I'm sorry if that's your answer. Like, who's gonna listen to you? And you don't actually like offer any path to win these people back.
0: Well, and also if they're brainwashed, it's your fault. Yeah, don't no, you know, like I think there's a lot
1: of media bias that works against the Democrats. But, like, the great Democratic politicians and, you know, like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, they also had the ability to, like, override the media. They had a voice that was so compelling that it could swamp whatever the New York Times or the networks were saying or Fox was saying. You know, whether Joe Biden has that ability or not, I'll leave it to your listeners to decide.
0: Well, I also think that one of the really underreported stories about Joe Biden is that people like him more than they think they do. Yeah. Which is yeah. why he polls poorly, but does much better in elections, right? Mm-hmm. I wrote a piece in 2016 about how he should drop out mm-hmm. because he had lost a lot of primaries, right? And I was like, if you're going to be the front runner, you have to run in front. Mm-hmm. And the truth was, You know, there's something I mean, I do not underestimate the the innate racism of the American voting public. He feels like a normal white guy. And I think that's a huge advantage for him.
1: Yeah, no, I I do think that works. and There is a lot of of affection for Joe Biden. And then more to the point, like I think if it does come down to Trump versus Biden, like a lot of the Democrats will rally because people remember the Trump era. And then Trump is, in fact, widely low. But, you know, like, I think the broader political problem is you kind of have to figure out ways to override the media, the negativity. And I'll just point to the Democratic governors. You know, like, I think if you look at the polling, a lot of the governors are actually polling quite well uh, in their states. And I think one reason is that we have a lot of Democratic governors that are really effective communicators, but also like putting forward a strong agenda. And so people Feel like, you know, well, this is someone who's out there. I may not agree with them on everything, but they're doing things. They're fighting for things. And I think that's just so crucial. And I'm hoping that, you know, like as we go into the election year, the Biden team is able to like they don't fall into this trap of just blaming the media. And, they, you know, like they offer this positive vision of what they can do to help make people's lives better.
0: And I think that that is the economic populism, which is, you know, we had Sherrod Brown on this podcast. People respond to it. The net net of it is what has Biden been doing, right? He's been bringing manufacturing back to America. I mean, one of the great examples is like this, the Ukraine money goes to building weapons in the United States. Now, again, I don't get super psyched about weapons. <laughs> Defense contractors are not like my favorite. You know, I grew up during the Gulf War One and Two, So I do not have a place in my heart for Raytheon. But I do think that it really is uh, an important data point that the whole goal of Bidenomics is to bring manufacturing back to the United States.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. I, I, I do think he has a good economic record. Uh, and I think there's stuff to run on. And really, I mean, like, it is about getting the message out there. I mean, I thought that, like, Obama in 2012 was very creative about, like, doing things like they just going on, like, you know, sports radio, right? And, like, yeah. people would never pay attention to the politics. But certainly, you know, Obama's talking about his picks, and then he mentions his policies. There are ways that you can you can get around the media. I mean, th- I think that's the work that has to be done. And again, I don't think it rests just on Biden or you know, his uh, re-election campaign. I think it's a broader Democratic Party thing. And, you know, like, you know, as we're near the end of the year, like, we should also emphasize the polling is a bit bleak, but, you know, Democrats have done really well. Like, the, the midterms were good and the, all the special elections. What you're seeing is Democrats outperforming the fundamentals, outperforming what they usually do. And to me, that shows, you know, there's a lot of signs out there that it's becoming a stronger party, with especially, like, a stronger grassroots And stronger people who've been radicalized by Dobbs and radicalized against all the, you know, Moms for Liberty garbage who are like radicalized by January 6th and really worry about their democracy. You have a really strong grassroots that's, you know, they're going to go to the mat.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Jeet here, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back. You can't
1: keep me away from
0: you. Today, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. When I first heard about it, I thought, it's about time. This makes sense. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in for savings. Let's say you, your spouse or kids, see the doctor or other medical provider. When your claims come in, HealthLock automatically renews them and flash. Any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. So you pay only what you owe. This is your money you're saving. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped members save more than $130 million. I get it. Medical billing errors can happen, but you should be able to pay with confidence. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit healthblock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com.
2: AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner kia movement that inspires call 800-333-4kia for details always drive safely limited inventory available warranties include 10-year 100,000 mile powertrain and five-year 60,000 mile basic warranties are limited see retailer for details
1: as the number one audio company iheartmedia gives you access to all every audience live conversations trusted influencers and the insights and data you need to grow iheartmedia is your access company go to iheartresults.com for more
0: Sherrod Brown is the senior senator from the great state of Ohio. Welcome back. I think you've actually been on this podcast before. Senator Sharon Brown.
3: Good to be with you i really appreciate your doing this
0: well i'm very excited so i wanted to talk to you about dodd frank but first i want you to talk to us a little bit about your senate race i can't believe i feel like you just had a senate race but i guess it was six years ago right
3: i guess it was and these race i mean with the money you spend and the chaos going on in the house of representatives now it seems like elections never end but i guess they do and then you move on
0: yeah. So sort of get me up to speed about what's happening.
3: Yeah, I represent a state. Trump won twice. I will be Trump's likely his number one target in the country. Where Trump, because he won Ohio by eight points each time, think they could beat me. But if you keep your head down. I focus on this job, on the dignity of work. Ohio is not as conservative as some national media people like to think. We passed by 13 points, a constitutional amendment um, on abortion rights all three of my Republican opponents facing each other in the March primary next year are for an abortion, a national abortion ban. So, you know, I've never seen, said, mine. I think I said this to you before, I I'd never see politics as sort of left or right, the liberal. I see it as who side you on. And this is so clear on abortion rights that, you know, I side with women and their in their families and their doctor and my opponents. They think that politicians in Columbus or Washington should make those decisions. And, Voters in my state said hell no to that.
0: Yes, they did. With that abortion measure in August, we talked a lot about how, you know, the sort of Ohio Republicans war on ballot initiatives and how they wanted to raise the margins to make it harder to pass a ballot initiative. That didn't work. They had that vote in August. Then they had this abortion vote. You are Ohio through and through. Do you feel that Ohioans, is it like Kansas with Brownback? Is there a kind of fury towards these republicans.
3: Well, I think it's it's clear that Ohio don't want their rights taken away. Even people that might not have voted for issue 1 are pretty incensed a lot of them that even though it would have passed by 13 points that there are still Ohio republicans at the state house and on the on the court system whatever that that still think they don't have to abide by this constitutional amendment. And that's just wrong. This is a state. But leading up to this constitutional amendment was pretty interesting in that 700,000 people signed a petition. As you said, Republicans, they tried to disqualify a number of those signatures. Then they went to the ballot to try to raise the threshold instead of 50% plus one to, to amend the Constitution. You needed 60%. Then politicians in Columbus changed the ballot language. They're supposed to summarize the ballot language. Instead, they made it longer. And they put things in there like pre-born child in the ballot language, then they made it harder to vote. If you go to Ohio State or Kent State or University of Cincinnati, you get a student ID issued by a state, underscore state university, that doesn't get you a ballot. You still have to get a state ID. It's clear that the, the opponents to abortion rights tried to do everything, yet we still won by 13 points, and they're still fighting it. So people just, you know, women don't trust Ohio politicians. And then on top of that, you got the three Republicans, I said, running for this seat. In the march primary that that are still saying we're for a national abortion ban which is a direct hit in the face to the 56 percent that voted for these constitutional rights
0: you've been involved in dodd frank will you give us a little bit of an explanation of what's happening with dodd frank right now
3: we had a hearing last week with the six with the eight masters of the universe the largest bank the president ceos of the largest banks in the country who wield immense power in this economy Frankly, wield immense power in the halls of Congress. Uh, the Federal Reserve had a um, have a rule under Dodd-Frank to bulk up, if you will, to strengthen capital requirements so banks don't collapse and end up with a, a public government bailout. All eight of them were opposed to them. Their lobbyists never give up. I remember right after the bill Pat Dodd-Frank passed, a uh, bank lobbyist, one of their prominent bank lobbyists, said, "Now it's halftime." In other words, we're going to keep fighting, and they have. They fought for ten years actually more than 10 years now, they fought the implementation of Dodd-Frank. They're continuing to fight it. There's something we're working on now, an executive compensation rule that the regulators had to pass. The Trump regulators simply didn't move on it at all. Uh, We're now trying to get this to happen. The bank lobbyists are fighting. Somebody said to me the other day, when you go to the grocery store, Right. You pay more because of stock buybacks and executive compensation and bonus. I mean, every day, Ohioans pay more because of the corporate stock buybacks and the executive bonuses. And my job is to take on those interest groups. And Don Frank was one of them that passed. It's a good bill. Generally, we want to make sure it's implemented. We want to make sure that that the banks don't weaken it.
0: So in Ohio, we have this case right now. Your governor always sort of gets credit for being a moderate, though. Clearly, he's very much not. You have a case right now, Brittany Watts. She had a miscarriage of 22 weeks. She miscarried in the toilet. The grand jury is still out on whether or not she's going to be charged with this heinous corpse mangling charge. Can you talk to us about this dystopian nightmare that's happening in your state?
3: You could look at it everywhere. Look what happens in Texas with the woman in Texas. I mean, it's not really all Republicans. It's statehouse politicians that they don't believe in women's rights. I mean, you know, one one thing I learned a long time, not in a long time, I've learned really since since Roe, really maybe since five years ago, I don't know, that we win these big battles as progressives, as people that care about human rights. We win on abortion rights. We win on civil rights. We win on generally human rights issues. And I thought they're permanent. Well, women will always have, will always have those rights. Voters will always have these rights. But Dr. King's, well, Coretta Scott King. Said you got to fight for them each generation. So what I've learned watching all this, and I felt naive in retrospect, is that you've got it. You got to stay in the arena. You got to stay active. You got to do things like you're doing, Molly, and shows like this, and writing and speaking out, because these battles are never fully won. And I can see it in Ohio right now. We definitively, overwhelmingly passed a constitutional amendment of abortion rights. Politicians aren't going to buy it. I mean, these aren't decisions for politicians to make. The voters made them. That's what keeps me going, knowing that these victories are never permanent. You've got to keep making sure that you're defending people's rights. You don't win them forever. You win them and you keep fighting because the other side, always with more money, always with more media outlets like Fox and right-wing talk radio, will always assault at the edges or straight on on the rights that we have gained for Americans.
0: It's really true. Do you think, though, that there is, like, on the local level in Ohio, people who are pushing back? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, do you think that this has created a sort of backlash?
3: Oh, I think the more they push it, the backlash already showed itself. In 2018, when I won by seven points, I won only I won sixteen out of eighty-eight counties. The abortion rights won in those sixteen and nine others because more and more suburban women, but small town women too, and men are realizing we deserve these rights and we're not going to give up these rights. And when when they voted overwhelmingly, and Ohio voters voted, and I said fifty-six forty-four. You know, I'm no pundit, but I also know that when you make that decision, that that emphatic decision. Taking those rights away is just morally wrong and anti-small-d democratic. The backlash was already against the six-week abortion ban in Columbus. And that was what the vote showed. The backlash is even greater now. Uh, and, and all you New know, islands want someone on their side. And that's what I want to be, is continue to fight for people and be on their side. I mean, as I said, it's, it's not left to right in politics so much as it's who's on their side. And that's why I win a state that some people say Democrats can't win or some people say it's concerned. It doesn't matter if you're conservative or liberal. You want somebody to fight for you and you want somebody to stay, to be on your side. That's the secret to governing and the secret to politics generally.
0: Do you think that voters, the reason that they're willing to cross the ticket for you or or vote a split ticket is because they know you or because I mean, what do you think this sort of secret sauce is? I don't think it's secret. I, I spent my life fighting for the dignity of work, taking on the
3: drug companies taking on the oil companies, taking on the corporations that jammed the country and jammed Congress on NAFTA and and uh, most favored nation status for China and all the things they did that that destroyed, undermined, or even destroyed some communities in Ohio and some neighborhoods where people lost decent, middle-class, solid working-class union jobs. And people, that's why people recognize them on their side. And uh, standing up. I, I wear a, a pen on my lapel, Molly, that's a depiction of a canary in a birdcage. The mine workers 120 years ago used to take the canary down the mine. They had no government. They had no union in those days strong enough or a government that cared enough to protect them. And I wear that lapel still in my still in my suit because it it reminds me about the dignity of work. It reminds me whom we're fighting for and what we're fighting against.
0: Yeah, it's so important. Do you think that your message of economic populism, can Democrats run with that more? And if so, how? I'm not
3: a pun. I don't tell other people what to do. But many in Ohio seem to think the Democratic Party, unfortunately, is a bicoastal elite. And we're not. But we've got to talk more about workers and see things through the eyes of workers more than we do. And I just think People think hard work should pay off. If you love this country, you fight for the people who make it work. That's been always my focus. I'll I'll always be pro-choice. I've been supportive marriage equality for 25 years. So I stood up to the gun lobby. And I understand those are economic issues, too, for the American public. I recognize that young people, it's the most pro-union generation in my lifetime, young people, and they want a chance, whether they work at Starbucks, whether they work, they go through a union apprenticeship program and become a bricklayer or whether they go to college and, and want to fight for the causes they believe in. It's it's all about giving kids an opportunity and, and, and joining a union at, at whatever age you are.
0: Since you're in Ohio and you're seeing a lot on the ground, do you think that with the death of local news, which is something your wife is involved in as well, who's a journalist, are you seeing a certain, like, a disinformation gap? Are you seeing, like on the ground people believing stuff that's not true i mean are you seeing the results of that or no uh,
3: yeah you do but I, and I think in ohio it's perhaps it's a unique case the speaker of the house the chairman of the state republican party and now the already have been sentenced to prison 20 years and 5 years respectively for taking a 61 million dollar bribe the the governor's head of the public utilities commission is was just indicted on similar charges uh, we think more and we hear more people. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. more. be indicted. But the local news, there's just not enough reporters at the statehouse anymore. I mean, I think they're working hard. They're aggressive, but there's only so much on their plate. And a uh, rear larger number of reporters that make a huge difference there. So you see politicians getting away with far too much because there's not the aggressive press corps because they're so outnumbered than there used to be. And I, I, I guess I close with that, thinking that, um, yearning for those days when the press really did have real investigative powers and authority and enough money to do it right.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Thanks. Molly, thank you. Fun interview. Good questions. Thanks. Jim Messina is the former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and Campaign Manager for President Barack Obama. Welcome to Fast Politics, Jim.
4: Thanks for having me. It's very exciting. <laughs>
0: Very exciting. Very, very exciting. So I have a cousin who calls me and he says, if we could just get Joe Biden to drop out, then just talk sense to that cousin.
4: That cousin, my family, (sighs) all my friends. Yeah. Molly, I'm doing a lot of uh, calming the bedwetters these days. And look, my only superpower is like I love data, and I look at the data. And I just think a couple things for for your cousin and, and my mama. The first is, let's not get out of hand that Joe Biden getting out of this race would, would fix things. Because just right. a, a couple reminders here. I mean, he beat Donald Trump once, in my opinion, the Democratic opinion, Donald Trump is the biggest threat to democracy of our lifetime. And so we ought to do whatever we can to make sure he doesn't get elected. And I think the best way to do that is to nominate Joe Biden. And it's not because I'm some Biden crazy. It's because a couple of things. One, we've already had the selection, And right. it's interesting in the history of presidential elections and U.S. Senate elections, no one who's been beaten once came back and beat the same candidate a second time. The other thing is, okay, let's say Joe Biden gets out tomorrow. Molly, I've met with over 25 people who would announce the next day they're running for president of the United States. And we don't know who's going to become the nominee. And we certainly don't know if that person is battle-tested and ready to be the Democratic nominee for president. Let me give you some examples. I mean, the entire Republican Party thought that Ron DeSantis was his godsend and was going to sweep away Donald Trump and be this amazing candidate. He has turned out to be a really poor national candidate.
0: He still wears the lefts. Continue. Yes. Yeah, the
4: still wears the lefts. And his wife is still a much better campaigner than he is. You know, there was no Rudy Giuliani presidency. He was way ahead in the polls and turned out to be a terrible candidate, you know, the the same. And there's Democrats like Gary Hart, who everyone thought was going to be the nominee, you know, fell apart. So I'm just not sure who would be the nominee. And it's such a condensed calendar that, you know, what if we nominate someone who can't win the general election and Donald Trump like walks in? So, you know, those are reasons why I think that we are safer with Joe Biden at the top of the ticket. Now, look, I'm not saying this is going to be a cakewalk. He barely won last time. This is going to be a close election. But I think when you think about Barack Obama once said to me that every president is always a reflection of the previous president, which if you think about it, Molly, is super Interesting and probably true. People thought that Jimmy Carter was out of touch, so they nominated this kind of guy with a vision, Ronald Reagan. (laughs) Then George Bush (laughs) came after him, and people thought he was, was sleeping the switch on the economy, so we got this in touch Bill Clinton. People thought that at the end of his presidency, he had some moral questions. We did the compassionate conservative George Bush. People thought that at the end of his presidency, he was an idiot, so they got the urbane Barack Obama who was the opposite of Barack Obama, Donald Trump. And when you think about kind of why Joe Biden won this election four years ago, it was because he was the opposite of Donald Trump. He was calm. He was someone who could get things done understood the process. Those things haven't really changed in the minds of the voters. So it is why people like me are comfortable that Joe Biden is our best candidate.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, Ron DeSantis, and he's still wearing the cowboy boots.
4: You know, it's true. And voters are so much smarter than people think they are. And they can just see through that bullshit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. And when you look at the sort of the landscape of the Democratic base, I think what's really interesting to me is that there is actually a huge bench of talent.
4: Boy, there really is. You know, again, I've met with over 25 people. And, boy, well, there's some people out there who are just really going to be great national candidates. We think now, you know, we don't know, but we think. I mean, remember that we once saw John Edwards was going to be this savior. And that turned out not to be. But with you, watch the way Gretchen Whitmer handled the abortion issue in Michigan and made it an economic issue, which every Democrat should do. She's got national talent. Gavin Newsom, national talent. Wes Moore, national talent. J.B. Pritzker, national talent. Like, you know, there's more and more of those people you and I can talk about. Gina Raimondo, Pete Buttigieg. Like, there's just... So many people, which is really a contrast to the last time we were in this place where, you know, it was sort of Obama or Hillary and it was sort of Biden or a couple of people. There's just so much talent out there.
0: Say more about Gretchen Whitmer making abortion an economic issue.
4: So I'm obsessed with this. So all of the Democratic consultants in the 10 square free logic zone called Washington, D.C., <laughs> 10 square miles, no fucking logic. <laughs> The, this right. great group called American Bridge put everyone together in January or February of 2022. And I stood up and said, look, the Supreme Court's likely going to get rid of Roe. It's going to be the issue. We need to start talking about how to talk about this. Every consultant told me how dumb it was, how stupid I was, and how economics were the only issue that would matter. And we just need to stay focused on that.
0: You know, people told me that very same thing.
4: Exactly. And like, it was terrible advice then and it's terrible advice now. But if you look at like, you know, there's been this long debate in the Democratic Party. Do you do turnout or do you do persuasion to swing voters? The answer is you do both. And Gretchen Whitmer was the first person who figured out how to do both on economics and abortion. She had this stunning ad where she looks at the camera and says, you know, People think that right to choose isn't an economic issue, but deciding whether or not to have a kid is the biggest economic issue you're going to have as a family. And kids are expensive. And this is why I fight so hard, because it should be your choice. These are your decisions. And it was just brilliant. And she doubled down and continued to talk about it in a way that I think is just really instructive for the rest of the Democratic Party.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. I just today was interviewing Sherrod Brown, who was talking about how the economic populism is something that, you know, even though Trump was lying, it really did help him a huge amount.
4: Exactly. I mean... Here's the, again, back to the numbers. Sorry to bore your listeners with numbers, but you and I fucking love it. Joe Biden became the first president in 100 years to win the presidency while losing the who's better on the economy question to Donald Trump. And in part he did it because Trump was so fucking crazy and in part he did it because of COVID. But the economic issues tend to be incredibly
0: important. So just talk to me about what you think Biden world needs to do to win here.
4: A couple things. Number one I mean, if you think about when you run a presidential campaign, you know, I'd run Molly 10 Senate races before I ran a presidential campaign. And they're just wildly different. And what you realize is in the presidential campaign, there are really two groups of people you have to care the most about. The first and most important is your supporters. Why is that the most important? Because they can do three things that you desperately need them to do. First of all, they can vote for you. Obviously, very crucial. Second of all, they can give you money and volunteer time. Insanely crucial. And third, and probably the most important, they can get their friends and family to vote for you as well. They can be ambassadors. They can say, hey, Molly, this is why I'm supporting Joe Biden and you should too. And in this age of political cynicism and 30-second ads, it is a proven fact that the most important thing on how voters think is what their friends and family say about politics. Those of you who listen to Molly every every week and care deeply about this, like, this is why you want this information. You are the most important people. So that's the first part. This is this bucket called our own supporters. And the second bucket is swing voters. And remember that America is the most partisan country in the world. I have 13 presidents and prime ministers around the world as my clients. In the average European, Asian, or Latin American elections, about a fourth to 40% of voters could go back and forth between the major parties. In the United States, it's about 8%. Eight, maybe 10% on the best moment of voters could actually vote for Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And so we're talking about a really small amount of people. So that is an incredibly long way of answering your question, which is what should Joe Biden's campaign do? The very first thing they have to do is focus on their supporters. And they're really doing that. You and I were on Morning Joe recently talking about that. They have the largest buy in the history of American politics on social media to young voters, African-Americans, and Latinos. Three areas where, you know, they have struggled a little bit, as every presidential campaign, including Barack Obama, did, too. Because after four years, everyone's pissed about something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) True. They need to message those people. And they're spending a lot of time right now doing that. And then, two, they have to focus on these swing voters. And the swing voters are really about two kinds of things. First is trying to say, hey, I've done the job. And they're doing that. And I think that's the kind of thing that they've done enough of. And it's now time to start to do something else. And then two is the choice, the choice between him and Donald Trump. I used to say to President Obama when I would fly to see him on Saturdays at the White House, look, if this election is a referendum on you, you will lose because incumbents lose referendums on them. If it's a choice between you and Mitt Romney, you're going to win because you're the better choice. And so eventually, they need to make this a choice. And again, back to the logic-free zone of Washington, D.C., where you and I spend too much time, right now, everyone there is wetting the bed screaming, oh my God, make it a choice, make it a choice. And the question on the table is when they do that. And, you know, probably the week before Christmas is not a Banner fucking time to do that. And probably when they'll do that is post-Iowa and definitely post-March 3rd, which is Super Tuesday, where Donald Trump will have enough delegates to be officially the nominee. I would expect coming out of the new year, you will see the campaign do that full time. And they've started to hint they're going to do that. They've had President Biden do it a couple of times in the past two weeks. I saw you talking about that as well. He's starting to talk about Trump in a way he hadn't for a while. It's about time to do this.
0: Do you think that one of the problems that Democrats have, and not not just Democrats, but like more traditional, normal politicians who are not completely insane, is that they don't fill up the vacuum. Like one of the things Trump has done really well, and this is true with some of the other MAGA politicians, there are younger Democrats who have done this, too, in a different way, not insane the way the Republicans have. But what Trump did was he filled the vacuum with a narrative and his people got a narrative and he got it out there quickly. And like what you see with his legal cases, this is a man who is he is doing these legal cases in the court of public opinion for his people. We're looking at Hunter Biden yesterday doing that very same thing, which I actually think is very smart. But do you think it's smart? It's a really a new way for Democrats to engage with voters. I mean, in this case, it's not voters, whatever it is with the mainstream media.
4: People say all the time, like, why do people like Donald Trump? Like, this is crazy. Like, I, you know, I can't figure this out. My mom, like, all the time says to me, Just, I don't have any friends who like him. Jim, explain to me why people like this lying asshole. And Donald Trump has two superpowers, Molly, that I think people forget. First of all, he's the best counterpuncher in modern American political history, and you see this by the famous, you know, the way he branded Marco Rubio with the little hands, and you know, he has the sanctimonious, and like those things are just brilliant. But. There's lots of people who could do that. I think he's better at it than anyone else, but he's, you know, it's not what he's really good at. What he's insanely good at, the best I've ever seen, the best certainly since Reagan, is controlling the narrative, to your point. He understands, there was this amazing article that scared the hell out of me yesterday, talking about how he's obsessed with memes on social media. And he is driving by himself the memes And deciding what the memes are, and then he emails a bunch of the big social media kind of people who have huge followers and says, you know, these are the memes we need to push. That is what the Democrats aren't doing. It is just incredibly amazing because, like, we invented, you could argue Barack Obama's campaign did the first one, but Democrats invented social media. And we invented running presidential campaigns on it. And it seems like we've just forgot. And meanwhile, Donald Trump is doing this. And so you've heard me ramble about this before, but I'm obsessed with TikTok. I'm obsessed with TikTok because it's awesome and I have so much fun on it. And I'm also obsessed because 175 million Americans are on it and all of our targets are on it, including young, brown, black and women voters. And the amount of share for Donald Trump, neither Trump or Biden is on the platform, but the amount of share of voice Trump is just decimating Biden on it. And it's because he has all these fervent supporters who are, to your point, filling the funnel, who are creating content, who are doing things. And it is one of the two things that keeps me up at night about the 2024 presidential election.
0: Yeah, there's a lack of transparency with all of these algorithms. But with the social media platform that is owned by the Chinese government, where content like Osama bin Laden's letter to America trend. Why isn't there more? I mean, Republicans hate it. Democrats hate it. Like, why can't they just ban it?
4: Well, a couple things. We have this pesky First Amendment that, you know, when I was in the White House, I tried to ban Huawei, the <laughs> Chinese telecom <laughs> Saying The lawyers finally came down and patted me on my little head and said, you know, it's unconstitutional to ban a single company. Second, I think there's been some confusion on it. I mean, they're not owned by the Chinese government. 75% of their investor base is owned by U.S. Venture capital firms, like you're not going to get rid of them. So we need to engage on them. And to your earlier point, some young people, some young elected officials, like this guy, Jeff Jackson, who's a member of Congress, has 2 million followers because he just uses it every day, right? There's this Democratic group called Voters for Change.
0: Yeah. Gen Z Voters for Change. I know them.
4: Gen Z. Thank you. Yeah. They're unbelievably good on TikTok. And, you know, so we just need to create content for it since it's not going to go away. And the right understands that and the left doesn't seem
0: to. Mm, that's not good. In this sort of moment, do you think there should be sort of more Biden out there, more Kamala out there, more surrogates? I mean, what do you think this sort of tax should be? I mean, should there be more rallies? How would you, if you were running this reelect, what would you do? Come next
4: year, I think um, the answer is more, more, more. Right. Like, we need more of everything. And I think in the off year, to go back to my earlier point, I understood the strategy. It was kind of the Obama 2012 strategy, which is we're going to spend 2011 talking to our base, uh, getting our, our poops into groups, building our campaign stuff, and then go out. And, you know, Barack Obama, people always forget this, but Obama did one rally in 2011 to announce his candidacy in April and then didn't do another one until 2012. We just raised money for a year. But I think there are a couple, Things that they need to unleash pretty quickly. The first is the vice president. You know, everyone's freaking out about African American youth and Latino turnout. She's amazingly good at talking to those folks. Another thing is, you know, you and I talked about this on one of the shows we were on together. You know, the day after Florida did what they did on abortion, she flew there and had a fight with...
0: Dee Santis.
4: Dee Santis, exactly. Unleash her on that. Senator of the college campuses. She's doing some of that stuff. We just don't see it because we're only, you know, sadly for America, there's only five states that matter in this election. And so if you live in the other 45 states, which I bet a
0: huge majority (laughs) of your
4: (laughs) listeners do...
0: And we do, too,
4: do Yes, don't we? Yeah. exactly right. So that's one, they need to unleash her. And then two, people forget who the most popular elected official in America is, and it is Michelle Obama. And so it's time for Mrs. Obama to come off the, the bench, too. And President Obama, as well. He's already done stuff. But, you know, the surrogate stuff really matters. I mean, I used and abused Bill Clinton in 2012, like he was my own personal... <laughs>
0: I feel like you're going to get in trouble for this. You have a minder on the no <laughs>
4: on this
0: record. Anyway, go on. Yes,
4: and Bill Clinton would say that too. Like yeah. sent no, I sent him everywhere. He's hilarious, right? Yeah, like I sent him everywhere because he was the explainer in chief, and he was explaining to the American voters why what Barack Obama was doing on the economy worked, and it was really important.
0: He also read as an old white guy. I think we cannot underestimate the old white guy aesthetic when it comes to politics. I'm sorry. Continue.
4: No, no, no. It's 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 very true.
0: You sent Bill Clinton out there. So you think that that's really Michelle Obama needs to be out there.
4: Yeah. And Barack Obama, Bill Clinton. I, mean, I do think, you know, we need white surrogates. And then the other thing is like, who are the swing voters really out there? And there are women in these five states that really matter. Right. And who are the people that talk to them? Like, you know, I just saw some research that, you know, the These undecided women who voted for Donald Trump and Barack Obama and Joe Biden, right? So this is a small group of people in these five states that really matter. Guess who they want to hear from, Molly? Taylor Swift.
0: That's right. I mean, don't we all?
4: Yes. Yesterday was her birthday, by the way. Shout out.
0: (laughs) All right. I'm going to let you go. I really appreciate you. I hope you'll come back.
4: Absolutely.
0: Thanks. Take care. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon.
2: My Junk Fast, you know what's one of my favorite things about the Trump era of Republicans? Always saying the quiet part out loud. What are you seeing here?
0: Always, always, always Republican Troy Nels, when asked what he hoped to see from an impeachment inquiry, which Republicans voted for on Wednesday, he said, Trump 2024, baby, because this has never been about impeaching Biden. This has always been about giving Trump a little bit of cover and helping his reelection. And for that, for saying the quiet part out loud, that is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's
4: Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robey, And me, Simone Boyce.